Welcome, uh, welcome to uh, the Hague uh, Program for Cyber Norms uh, podcast. I am Dennis Bruders. I am uh, uh, the senior fellow of the Hague Program for Cyber Norms, and this is the first in uh, what uh, is hopefully going to be a series of uh, podcasts we're doing, in which we talk to researchers, uh, practitioners in the field of uh, cybersecurity to talk about their recent work. Um, today, I am talking with uh, Ron Diebert, uh, professor of political science at uh, Toronto University in Canada and director of the Citizen Lab. Um, and we're going to be talking about his latest book called Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Um, welcome, Ron. Wow, glad to be here with you, Dennis. Okay, that's great. Um, you've written, uh, we talked a little bit before, you've written uh, what I think is a great book, um, but also a slightly depressing book. And then it has an, an upturn at the end where we talk about solutions. So um, what I would like to do for this podcast is to make sure that people get a good idea of what the book is about uh, and, uh, and what it entails also in terms of thinking about the future. So how do we reclaim the internet? Um, for that, I'm going to sort of try to walk you through, uh, well, Ron is going to try to walk you through uh, the main uh, uh, chapters of his book before we end up uh, with the solutions. Um, I'm going to start with a quote from, from chapter two. We're starting with chapter two, which is entitled Toxic Addiction Machines. And I'm starting with a quote in which you, I'll just read the quote. Um, in January 2020, the esteemed bulletin of the atomic scientists set their widely referenced doomsday clock is a symbol representing the risk of human-caused ex existential catastrophe 20 seconds closer to midnight. Although they cited a number of factors, one that stood out was their concern about the toxic information environment in which we find ourselves, which they had concluded deteriorated to the point of being a public safety hazard. Um, that is a very powerful thing. Uh, the doomsday clock is, is, a, is a very powerful uh, image, basically, of you know, imminent catastrophe. Um, and there's two elements in, in this chapter. So one is sort of the toxicity and the other one is the addictiveness. Um, could you tell us a little bit about uh, about the addiction element? Hey, you, you referenced that it's it's about uh, almost like falling in love. Hey, it's uh, oxytocin levels. So how does this this uh, digital environment in which we live? How does it affect us? Yeah, I think that's a good question. It's a very Im important place to start. And I think you know if you ask most people, um, even non specialists, non academics, they recognize this in their own habits. You know, we carry around with us these devices at all times. Um, they are very convenient, but they also condition us in various ways. And that conditioning, I mean that, that word literally, drawing from B.F. Skinner and behaviorism, the conditioning is an essential component of the design of not just social media, not just the platforms, but all of the devices and accoutrements that go with our engagement with social media. Why do they do this? Well, this revolves back to the underlying business model, the dynamics of surveillance capitalism. So at the core of social media, no matter how they describe themselves, they're principally about one aim, and that is to gather as much information as they can from their users with more and more sensors. To in, order, in order to accomplish that objective, they have to make their platforms and all of the all of the peripherals that go along with it as compelling as possible. They need to make them attractive to us. They mean, need to make them as unquittable as possible, as essential. And <clears throat> so they pour a lot of resources into the design, into the, into the uh, construction of features that tap into cognitive traits 
um, that are part of our human nature. Um, so this is not an accident. It's not something, of course, that the the big tech platforms talk about because it's um, you know something that they they uh, it's maybe perhaps a, a, a dirty secret of some sort. Um, but it is a, a design feature, and unfortunately, it's a design feature that leads to a lot of the negative externalities that we experience on a daily basis. So the toxic public sphere, the the poisonous kind of conversations we see on social media are uh, directly derived from this design feature. Yeah, because that's 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 sort of the, uh, the, the, the nasty thing about it. It dovetails into each other, right? So the design features dovetail into sort of the the, the the information environment we inherit from that. Uh, sometimes uh, they actually do say, uh, you quote in your book, uh, uh, Sean Parker from, from Facebook, basically saying, okay, all those likes, they're basically meant to be a dopamine hit uh, and actually literally quoted as saying, okay, you're not as free as you think. So I think that's fairly forward. But, but it's interesting to say sort of the way they try to entice us to do that favors, um, um, uh, I think as you call it, sort of favors the chaotic, it favors the, 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 the extreme positions in the, in the debate. That's right. um, so, so it delivers us something that is, could you say that is basically the perfect environment for, for information operations or whatever you want to, to call yeah. it, basically? Yeah, this is, uh, um, you know, unintended consequences, I think. I'm not a big fan of master variables in history, but if there was one, I would say it's unintended consequences. So you design something and, you know, the designers of, of social media, the young Silicon Valley engineers and entrepreneurs, obviously did not intend to create something that could be exploited in this manner. But it's actually quite easy to see causally. So once you create an environment that is uh, featured by design, um, the the propulsion forward, the selection and prioritizing of extreme sensational, emotional content, the type of content that grabs users, uh, those are designed by the algorithms of the companies to be prioritized because that's what captures audience interest. Um, now, when you take disinformation or information operations, um, which have a, you know, a, a history as long as humanity has been around, um, you couldn't create a more perfect environment for that type of propagation. So what we're seeing right now um, is uh, a lot of countries and a lot of private uh, companies servicing those uh, uh, both both governments and and big companies experimenting uh, in how to take advantage of this environment. Russia gets a lot of attention for good reason because they're very good at this sort of thing. They have a lot of experience doing this going back decades, uh, even pre-Soviet times, the use of compromat, desinformatia, um, but they're not alone. Um, there are countries all over the world that are recognizing, hey, this is an opportunity we need to get into. And it's also very profitable as well. That's a nice segue actually into chapter three. So thank you for that one. Um, so today actually is uh, 17 December uh, 2010 as we're taping this, which is exactly 10 years after uh, Mohamed Bouazzi uh, in Tunisia uh, set fire uh, to himself in protest and sort of sparking what has become uh, known as the Arab Spring. 
Um, in the Arab Spring, as as we all remember, sort of was uh, was at that time sort of foretold as okay, uh, this is new media, social media helping uh, helping liberate people. Uh, so it's very much the, the freedom component of that was was very big. Um, and I think now, and this is also a quote from you. Um, so now we. Uh, Turns out, social media are a dictator's best friend, right? So this is this is where we end up. Plus ten years. So could you? And you already sort of mentioned them both. Sort of how do governments use them, and then especially how do autocratic governments use them? Which is, of course, a lot of work you do with the uh, with the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but also, um, I would like to I'd like you to highlight sort of the commercial aspect of it, and to which degree, and I think to a large degree, that is. A Western affair, right? This is a lot of this off-the-shelf or tailor-made stuff uh, that that autocrats use is not coming from uh, uh, is coming from 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 liberal democratic countries to a large extent. That's right. Yeah, I think here again we have to go back to the underlying business model of social media and highlight a slightly different feature than the addictive component, which is the insecurity. So another feature of social media is this philosophy of move fast and break things, constantly innovating, creating new uh, applications which require new code, new devices, constantly upgrading. Um, An unintended consequence of that feature is the fact that you have this pervasive insecurity. And in fact, that pervasive insecurity is combined with another feature invasive by design. So the entire environment is meant to get as close to users as possible, get inside their habits, be with them at all times, but in such a way that it, it is um, creates um, enormous insecurities for them as users. And of course, this is another unintended consequence that the designers didn't think about is that there would be malicious actors out there, uh, bad people who are going to look to exploit this. And you mentioned the Arab Spring. Another driving force here was the lesson of that period. So, you know, while most of the Western world, most of the media were looking at at these events thinking, wow, this is a marvelous example of how technology, uh, digital technology, social media can enable people power. This is a new social movement. Um, It's toppling dictators. Um, what the autocrats were, were doing, on the other hand, was something completely different. They were looking at this, and, and this happened also in Iran, and I would say in Russia as well, where you had similar types of popular mobilization going on, enabled by digital technology. The people in charge uh, looked at this and said, we must prevent this from happening. We must neutralize this. And uh, they turned to the private sector. So there are uh, companies out there that supply products and services to um, intelligence agencies, to law enforcement, to security services. And you have, meanwhile, this environment, the communications environment that is uh, highly insecure, invasive by design, poorly regulated, and hence prone to abuse. And that's a a deadly mixture of variables, um, quite literally, because what happens is that... um, you know, security agencies in governments, especially ones that have poor public accountability and transparency, can use these products and services from the surveillance industry to really get inside and neutralize their opponents in ways that um, are unprecedented in human history. To have somebody like uh, a person I feature in the book, Omar Abdulaziz, who is a confidant of, of Jamal Khashoggi, 
um, a thorn in the side of Muhammad bin Salman, uh, to be able to get inside his device, look at everything through his eyes, be able to see what he's planning is incredibly powerful. And, and once those governments are able to do something like that, it creates another um, variable here, uh, which I talk about in the book, the fear factor. Even if you're not hacked now and you're part of a dissident movement, an opposition group, um, it creates a chilling effect thinking that it might be possible for your device to be hacked. And that may be the, the most insidious effect of them all, to, to put fear in the hearts of people, um, to, to essentially neuter them, uh, neuter civic associations. I quote Montesquieu, a political theorist from, from uh, long ago who talked about this in an entirely different context, but the same principles apply instilling fear is the fittest spring of autocratic governments i think yeah i think that's that's a that's a good point i remember a, sm a small piece that stephen walt american uh, uh, political scientist wrote when he wrote about uh, the uh, the revelations by Snowden, and he said the big effect of this, and this was in the context of Western countries, basically, he said the big effect of this is not um, the actual intrusion. The big effect is the chilling effects. The big effect mm -hmm. is that people are going to watch over their shoulder. And he basically said, oh, uh, we stand a chance of turning into a nation of sheep, basically, because we're all cowering, etc. So that's, that's a different... But there's also a balancing act, right? So once these... Once these kind of methods are out there, then you get the eternal, uh, uh, and we'll come back to that, but you get the eternal debate between the good guys and the bad guys and, and whether the good guys can use these kind of uh, 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 technologies for good. Um, and so that's that's always the balancing act, and I see you touching upon it in your book uh, a few times. Um, we'll come back to that when we uh, go into the, 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 the conclusions. Um, so I want to go now to chapter four, and I think to most of our uh, our audience, this is the one that sort of uh, blindsides them because they're yeah, it's about the environmental uh, aspect of uh, of this digital world we will, uh, we have created, um, and and this is where it really sort of gets to you because uh, a lot of this information is not that available, uh, uh, not that readily. If you look for it, obviously it is, but uh, um, but I want to I want to start with a quote when you're talking about. For example, all the mining that is necessary uh, to get all the different uh, uh, minerals and, and, and things we need to develop devices, batteries, etc. And this is about China, uh, about Bay and Oba. Um, and you quote a BBC journalist who is looking at, uh, at a site uh, uh, that is an 11 square kilometer sludge waste pond, about three times as large as Vancouver Stanley Park. And then the journalist describes it as it's a truly alien environment, dystopian and horrifying, that made him both depressed and terrified, realizing that this was the byproduct, not just of consumer electronics in my pocket, but also of green technologies like wind turbines and electric cars that we get so smugly excited about in the West. And that sort of, um, uh, sort of slams the door in your face because it's sort of, okay, all the elements where we thought we may be moving in the right direction, if you follow it down the chain, if you follow it down to its origins, it's having massive repercussions elsewhere. So um, in, in order to confuse us a little further, could, could you elaborate a little bit on what you found there? Because it's, it's very impressive. Thank you. Sure. Yeah, this, this also was a bit of a surprise to me, although I've been exploring this dimension, um, the, the negative 
uh, environmental consequences of our technological environment for quite a long time. And I was trying to think of a way um, to, you know, how, how am I going to fit this in? And, and once I started writing this book, it became obvious that this is another of what I call the painful truths of social media, often overlooked. The way we experience a lot of this, what we're doing right now, for example, feels like magic. It feels weightless. It's like a virtual mirage. But as we speak, um, the uh, physical infrastructure that's being tapped into to mount this call and record what we're doing is enormous. And a lot of the energy that's used to, to power this very call that we're having comes from fossil fueled power sources, unfortunately. Um, and of course, there's a full spectrum of, of uh, ecological consequences connected to not just social media, but our entire communications ecosystem from the mining, which you described there, to the manufacturing, also overlooked. All of this stuff has to be assembled somewhere. And generally speaking, the labor practices are, are very poor. The environmental conditions around manufacturing are terrible. Uh, the water consumption, the energy consumption is huge. Um, then you have the, the draw at the center of it all. And then, of course, finally, the waste. Um, I think, however, this is one of the easier, uh, relatively speaking, uh, problems or pathologies to solve. Because we, we know what the answer is here. We need to consume less. We need to be more restrained in how we uh, use technology, especially this uh, constant um, compulsion to upgrade uh, to throw away a device, they're, they're designed not to last. Like the the earbuds that people wear, I talk about in that chapter, which basically last, uh, you know, anywhere from a year to 18 months, and then they end up in a landfill. Um, and, and actually, the recycling process was another shock to me, how energy intensive recycling is. Um, we, we think we're doing something really responsible when we put our electronics in the recycling bin, but we don't actually see what happens to them once they go to a recycling center um, where even more energy is used to convert them. So we've got a big problem here in perception. We, we have been told for long that, you know, electronic digital technologies are a solution to environmental problems. That's actually not true as it stands right now. It could be in the future. It's going to be essential to use these technologies to monitor the planet in ways that we are, but we need to come up with a much better way to do this sustainably. And I think that segues us nicely into the final chapter. And I'm, I'm, I'm interested to say, okay, so the, the solution to this is easy. And I think you're right. The solution to this is easy in theory, <laughs> because yes. restraint <laughs> is not, let's, let's say restraint is not the forte of mankind. So that's uh, mm -hmm. a, mankind thinks restraint is difficult and what you have argued basically especially starting in chapter chapter one is that we are now fully immersed in in an addictive uh, digital environment that is that is geared and designed by uh, the smartest minds in in computer technology to keep us involved to keep us consuming and to keep us going so that's that's um and that's that's going to be a tough call, um, um, but it's a call you also take up in uh, in the book, which is uh, which is really good. Um, so, the final sentence, and I'm going to uh, uh, read it out to you. Um, the final sentence of the book uh, is: We have a once in a lifetime opportunity to reset. 
we can claim the internet for re reclaim the internet for civil society. The principle of restraint should be our guide. So that is sort of sort of the 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 the, the calling, uh, sort of sort of cry basically. Um, so two elements. So so one is the principle of restraint, which you really connect to the sort of the intellectual tradition of republicanism. So I'd like to ask you for that um, to to go a little bit into that in in sort of more abstract terms before we go into more practical applications. But I was also triggered by the once in a lifetime uh, element of this sentence. So so there is a now or never uh, uh, element to it. But um, um, tell us tell us about republicanism. Sure. Yeah. So, <clears throat> I, you know, I, di I, I recognize that the, the first part of the book is quite daunting. And, and I did that deliberately. I wanted to really shock people and say, look, let's let's deal with this, frankly, in a clinical sense is how I, I thought of it. You know, when you're when you've got some disease, some pathology or sickness, you don't want to um, sugarcoat it. When you hear the news from the doctor, you want to be told the truth. And, and that's what I wanted to do with the first part of the book is really outlined in a kind of cold, rational way, the evidence around the pathologies of social media, but not end there. I wanted to say, okay, we need to move beyond this because often you find people are recognizing these problems, but not coming up with solutions. And the good news here, in my view, is that we do not need to invent some new fancy cyber theory to deal with these problems. Humans have had similar challenges in the past in, in different contexts, different scope and scale. And there is a long tradition of theorizing about how to um, put in place mechanisms to prevent the abuse of power, to prevent a lot of the pathologies that we see around social media. And that tradition comes from liberal Republican theory. And of course, it's, it's kind of ironic um, to tap into this theory given the party that goes by the name in the United States, which is, as I say in the book, almost antithetical to the core principles of republicanism. And I did that deliberately because, you know, all of us outside of the United States are looking with shock and horror at what has gone on over the last four years there. And I think that country, unfortunately, has escaped and, and lost sight of a lot of the core principles around which it was formed. I could have just as easily, by the way, um, drawn from Dutch history to do this, right? Because republicanism is defined as much by Dutch tradition as it is by US tradition, the Hanseatic lead, the merchant class, how uh, there was a conscientious um, attempt to design restraints around uh, the exercise of power to prevent its concentration. Big is bad, according to Republican theory. And, and right now we're um, facing a real problem when it comes to the potential for the abuse of power. You've got this um, enormous capacity on uh, the part of these massive tech platforms to see inside our personal lives. And then you also have that data available to governments. And that is a recipe for serious abuse of power. And we're seeing this all over the place. So, um, you know, there is a, a tradition of thinking about how to uh, separate uh, the exercise of power through checks and balances, through restraints of various sorts that I get into in that final chapter. So it was less about a series of recommendations than reminding people, hey, you may not uh, realize this. Uh, it may feel like kind of secondhand to you, 
But there are some core principles here that we've relied on in the past uh, that we can draw upon and apply them to uh, the, the world we live in today. You say, okay, so it's, it's, it's sort of time on our traditions. Um, so, we, so we have a playbook, basically. We, we, we don't have to start from scratch. Um, and I think that's true, but I think also that sort of the adversary in, in the theoretical sense, so, so uh, big all-knowing government, big all-knowing uh, data is, is fierce and formidable. Plus, yeah. especially in the case of, of, of the companies, this, this is what their uh, livelihood is built on, right? So, so they're not going to step back easily from this. So other points of hope, I was sort of thinking, so, so recently we saw... Uh, we saw uh, so the, the American elections. We saw Facebook and Twitter behaving slightly differently from normal. Uh, in, uh, normally, they would just waive their responsibility. We saw recently Pornhub uh, deleting uh, millions of, uh, of of videos because of uh, basically very wrong things happening in there. We saw uh, Apple saying, okay, we're going to put in the Apple Store uh, with each app what the privacy implications yeah. are, what they do with the data. Are these are these signs of, of restraint? Are these signs of moving in a direction? Or is this just companies trying to protect uh, the golden eggs by, by sort of move, maneuvering around the edges of what they need to be doing? Yeah, that's a very good way of characterizing it. I'd say it's a bit of both. It's, it's fragmented. It, it's ad hoc. It's kind of reactionary. So the companies feel the pressure and, and the real, the, there is a great opportunity right now because of the dawning recognition that something is wrong. Like there, there is a gestalt in the air. People feel it. You just, you can ask anyone and they go, yeah, you know, I know something's not right about this. It needs to be fixed. How are we going to do it? And the companies are responsive to that. But, um, you know, if it remains at that level, um, for example, uh, Twitter flagging uh, inaccurate information on its posts. If it's just that, it won't solve the underlying uh, dynamic that's driving all of the pathologies, which is why we need to look deeper into regulation. We need to get at the core of what's causing the problem, which in my view is the business model. Surveillance capitalism has been left um, to, to develop largely without any form of restraint around it. Um, so we need to, to um, think about that. There's also antitrust is on the table now. Obviously, um, big news in the United States uh, that Facebook is now facing antitrust lawsuits from you know dozens of states and, and at the federal level. Google as well. Europe is doing this. So it's, it's in the air right now. Um, of course, there are huge risks in getting it wrong which is again why we need to do this not in a fragmented ad hoc way. We need to think about this from the ground up, from the bedrock. You know, what are the principles that we want to base all of this regulation on? What should they look like? And this is why I thought it was very important uh, to remind people of this tradition. But if, if you talk about business models, so, 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 so breaking up companies uh, makes them less big, so that's good. Um, but it doesn't change the underlying uh, no. structure of the business model. So the, tackling the business model is is really hard, I think. So 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 I'm curious to hear what you think about that. And are we also not perhaps too late? Because now it's not just the business model of sort of the Silicon Valley giants, but now we also have Alibaba, we have Tencent, we have all kinds of different uh, uh companies that operate on the same business model but operate within a very different political framework that is maybe 
a little further uh, removed from republicanism than than the United States, even. <laughs> Hence the urgency. And I, I should underline here that although I think there is a, a set of solutions, I would never say it's going to be easy. In fact, I, I think it's, it's we're in quite desperate times for that reason. And why I say we have a once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, look, the alternatives here are we just accept what's going on and kind of let it uh, unwind, uh, unhindered, and we will see where that goes. And I think ultimately that would lead to disaster. Um, we could think there's some fancy new application or technological fix, uh, or we could leave it to the companies to, to fine tune what they're doing. I don't think any of that will work, which is why we need to think more fundamentally. In terms of the business model, yeah, it's, it's going to be very difficult to get at the underlying um, engine of surveillance capitalism. But one area, just to give an example, where I think a lot could be done is around the location tracking industry. I call it in the book a cesspool. So you have you know, what the big platforms do, what Google, Facebook, and so on collect. But then uh, largely invisible to the average consumer is a layer of industry, data brokers, uh, advertisers, location trackers that are like parasites. And they've flourished in the social media environment, but they're causing enormous harm because they're largely unregulated. So we're seeing um, location tracking companies selling data they collect, very fine grain, highly revealing data to security services, for example, without warrants. Um, that's an area where if regulators got together and pressure was put on lawmakers, uh, major, uh, a major difference could happen um, in a way that would mitigate some of the harms uh, that we're seeing. With respect to China, you're absolutely right. Like this is um, even more daunting to contemplate that you have uh, models of how to organize surveillance capitalism that are entirely compatible with authoritarian one-party state rule. And those technologies are now propagating globally, um, which is why there is even more urgency. If we don't get it right uh, in our own backyards, uh, we will not be able to face the challenges of what's coming over the horizon, um, which is why also I advocate in the book to start locally. I think if all of us who, who share these concerns start by focusing on the most local level of all, our municipalities, the cities in which we live, instead of worrying about governing the globe, uh, we would make uh, far more effective progress uh, from the inside out, so to speak, and building up our defenses locally uh, before taking on the challenges of, of something as daunting as China. I, I agree. I was also reminded when you talk about uh, the, the sort of the, the data structures and the leaching of, of these uh, about a book by Cathy O'Neill, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, totally, which, yeah. which which sort of also has a clarion call for, for doing something uh, on that because of the real life repercussions of what these companies do. Um, so, okay, so if you would lead the charge, it would start there, it would start locally. Um, I would like to end with us, right? So so just uh, uh, normal consumers, as you, as you indicate before. So the principle of restraint is not just uh, restraint of government, it's not just restraint of, um, of, uh, uh, of big companies, it's also restraint on ourselves, right? So we need to, we need to do something uh, to actually make it happen. 
Um, and again, I would say that the deck is stacked against us, right? So, so the way this is done, so so how how should we do this? Should we end this this call with saying, please don't listen to this podcast because <laughs> because it's really bad for the environment? But but you get you get the point, right? So how yeah. do you pull away? And like you say, you see it in your own environment. You see how difficult it is to step away from from uh, from everything that is there. Uh, we spend our days zooming at the moment on and webexing. So. So how, how do we do this? How do we make a story? I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because often this part is overlooked. A major feature of Republican theorizing going all the way back to ancient Greece is about this idea of civic virtue, about what are the qualities one needs or wants to have in citizens to make a viable republic. And um, civic virtue is not just about being good in a generic sense. It's about a certain quality, a set of characteristics that you want people to live their lives by. And the only way that this can come about is through public education. Um, we've seen um, really universally across the globe over the last couple of decades, corresponding with the rise of this digital mega machine that we all live in now, uh, a, an enormous emphasis, overemphasis on math, science, engineering, um, the sciences, basically, at the expense of humanities, civics, the arts. And I think that is why, in part, we're in the situation we find ourselves. Uh, we need to um, educate people uh, in terms of tolerance, respect for difference, diversity. Um, I realize these are not like uh, groundbreaking revelations that I'm coming up with. Everyone kind of knows this, and yet we don't do it. We kind of take for granted that people will behave a certain way. It just doesn't happen unless there is some investment by societies in cultivating that type of restraint that comes from an individual's own behavior and a sense of how to act responsibly as part of a collective, um, which is why we can't also just blame it all on Facebook or Twitter. Our problems run much deeper than that. They have to do with how we think about ourselves in relation to each other as part of a collective. Um, I think that is, uh, uh, again, a, a daunting task uh, before us, but at least it's uh, it's one uh, uh, with a perspective, let's put it that way. Um, so I think, uh, I think we're going to stop there. Um, thank you very much uh, uh, for being with us and, and, and talking about this book. Um, thank you, Kenneth. For whoever is uh, is listening, um, if you have not had enough, uh, buy the book. It's it's well worth uh, worth your read. It's called Reset: Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Um, uh, thank you uh, for listening. Um, subscribe to uh, our podcast uh, if you are interested on whatever platform you are using right now. And if you want more information on the Hague Program for Cyber Norms, then uh, follow the links to our uh, to our website. Uh, thank you again, Ron and. Uh, uh, Thank you for listening.